Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, historian Tanisha Ford will join us to talk about her biography of Molly Moon, who was one of the most influential women of the civil rights era. She was president of the fundraising arm of the National Urban League. And the book titled Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the, the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement illuminates an overlooked aspect of the civil rights era, the powerhouse fundraising effort that supported the movement, the luncheons, galas, cabarets, traveling exhibitions, attended by middle-class and working-class black families, the Negro press, titans of industry, including Winthrop Rockefeller. Denise Ford is a writer, researcher, and cultural critic, working at the intersection of politics and culture. She's forged an international reputation for her groundbreaking research on the history of black style and fashion and social movements. And uh, she was honored as one of the Roots' most one, 100 most influential African Americans. She's currently professor of history at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, where she teaches courses on African American and African diaspora history, biography and memoir, and geopolitics of fashion. Uh, Tanisha Ford, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. This is fascinating history. Uh, how did you uh, encounter Molly Moon? I encountered her in the archive. I wasn't looking for her because I didn't know she existed. Like most people, I'd never heard her name, but found newspaper clippings of this amazing black woman who hosted these fabulous events in Jim Crow era America. And I thought, wow, why don't I know her name? I want to know more about her. So it just began as something of a, a side project where I just started collecting any newspaper clippings I could find uh, featuring Molly Moon. And before I knew it, I had amassed hundreds of newspaper clippings from across the African-American press from the 1940s through the 1960s. And I knew that there was a story here, especially once I noticed that those clippings weren't just about beautiful parties. They were fundraisers for the movement. Uh, that's important, right, and, and uh, overlooked uh, part of the history, I think, uh, because it takes money to, to do all this work, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I'm a historian of the civil rights movement, and I myself hadn't really thought about the true cost of racial equality in this country, that if you're going to have a march on Washington, for example, and you're going to bring in a quarter million people to Washington, D.C., how are they going to get there? In my mind, I guess originally I thought that maybe people were paying for their own transportation, but this was really a coordinated effort. So you have people who are sponsoring buses and trains, even chartered airplanes. Um, people have to pay for lunches, for volunteers, uh, first aid kits porta potties all of those things cost money. So once I started to think about that, I was like, wow, that's true. If you, if you imagine all of the freedom rides and lunch programs, breakfast programs, voter registration drives, all of those things cost money. So following Molly Moon and her fundraising initiatives allowed me to think about the real cost of racial justice. A little bit later, I want to have you take us back to her early life and her evolution, but uh, maybe um, tell us a bit more about Molly Moon, the, the, the person, as, as I guess you encountered, what, 1950s, 1960s, around the time that uh, she was raising all this money. So she had a, a day job. Uh, she was a social worker by training, and she was tapped to join the National Urban League once her fellow social worker colleague, Lester Granger became the head of the Urban League in, in the early 1940s, and it was an organization that was really deeply invested in providing social services to African Americans, because during this time, 
African-Americans did not have access to social services in the ways that their white counterparts did. So the National Urban League was created in the the early uh, 19-teens to provide those kinds of services, particularly for black migrants who are coming to the U.S. from um, from parts of the global south, but also parts from, from the U.S. south to the U.S. north. And Molly Moon um, was tapped by Granger to lead the league into a new era where it was really trying to support domestic laborers and other people who didn't benefit from the FDR's New Deal programs. So she creates this body called the National Urban League Guild, which melds her expertise as a social worker, someone who's working very closely with black migrant communities in New York City where she lived. And she's also blending these things with her her, pers- her magnetic personality and her skills as a hostess and party planner. And she creates the guild, which becomes a major public-facing entity of the National Urban League. At first, they're just, you know, trying to get the word out about the league to other people who are compassionate toward the needs of African Americans. Uh, But then it expands into a major fundraising arm. So by the time I encounter her in the archive in the early 1960s, there are guild chapters in cities all across the United States. And the, the women who are the helm of these guilds have amassed so much social and political power in their own communities that they have politicians um, in their address books, both local and state politicians. They work closely with local media, business people in their various cities. And so they're able to raise these, these funds on a local level that they can use for their local National Urban League affiliate, but that they can also send to the national headquarters, and those monies can be used to fund the National Urban League, um, national Urban League's major fundraising initiative. Uh, tell me about some of these uh, fundraisers. There's galas and cabarets and traveling exhibitions, uh, all kinds of things. You know, that was some of the most fun of doing this research, was getting to spend time recreating the spaces that Molly Moon would have held these events. So as you mentioned, her initial fundraiser is an event called the Beaux-Arts Ball, which is a costumed affair where people would come decked out in various, you know, fun and elaborate costumes, and they would parade during the gala and compete in the costume competition where they could win prizes, including trips abroad and uh, cruises to the the Bahamas, which was a major deal for African Americans in the 1940s when she first starts uh, holding these events to be able to travel abroad. It was a huge thing that she was doing here. But they also had... Um, art fundraisers, so they would have various celebrities produce not well-made art, but in the spirit of generosity, they would produce these people, these art pieces of people like Joe Lewis and others. Even Dwight Eisenhower participated in one of these things, and they would then auction off these artworks for money, to raise money for the National Urban League. They also brought the Ebony Fashion Fair. In fact, Molly Moon was the first person to bring the Ebony Fashion Fair, which was a traveling fundraiser. Um, She brought it to New York City, and this was a major deal because it was black models getting to showcase the wares of famed European designers at a time when 
Globally speaking, African-Americans weren't seen as arbiters of fashion and good taste, even though within our communities we knew that to be the case, right? So Molly Moon was pioneering a lot of these activities and initiatives and doing so in a way that integrated New York City. So this is, again, pre-Brown v. Board of Education. And so in many parts of the country, racial segregation is still the law of the land in public accommodations. And so Molly Moon, by having events in the Rockefeller's Rainbow Room at Rockefeller Center or having events at the Waldorf Astoria, she was breaking down that color barrier. So it was a form of partying, but with a good cause. <laughs> Uh, if I'm remembering right, I think it was her husband who who said, uh, you know, if we hold these events, kind of fancy events, middle class black families will come and, and they'll spend money. Right. So Molly Moon's husband was a, a famed at the time, famed journalist who wrote very extensively about issues related to um, lynching across the U.S. South. He also wrote about housing discrimination in great detail. To be a major black public intellectual. But he ends up losing his job because he was encouraging people to unionize. And he finds work as a low-level administrator in FDR's White House. So he's part of that um, so-called black cabinet of people that includes folks like Mary McLeod Bethune and Robert Weaver, who becomes the first director of HUD, for example. And uh, so he, too, was deeply invested in justice work and would go on to become the publicity director of the NAACP. So you have Molly Moon working with the National Urban League and Henry Lee Moon, a prominent leader with the NAACP. So they were this social justice power couple, if you will. And they had a strategy for how to get people involved. And what they wanted to do was create a cross-class spectrum of black support for the movement. So they wanted to create environments where weary subway workers and domestic laborers could party alongside black doctors and lawyers and also people like the Rockefellers and the Mellons and the Carnegies, that they could all, you know, socialize in the same space. And that could be a way to knock down not only the racial hierarchy, but also the class hierarchy. Uh, how were these events seen more broadly, uh, you know, the broad media? Um, the broader society? Well, initially, most of the archival material I found came from the African-American press. So when Molly Moon is hosting these events in the early 1940s, before she launches the National Urban League Guild, she's doing work for community-based organizations like the Harlem Community Arts Center, which was a vital training center that was funded in part by New Deal resources. Um, but once she joins the Urban League and begins working with them, alongside people like Winthrop Rockefeller, who have far more visibility, and that means that the media coverage of these events begins to shift. So now the New York Times is covering these events. Life magazine is coming to Harlem to attend Molly Moon events. I found letters from people in Ireland writing to Molly Moon because they had seen stories about her in Life magazine. And so they were writing to express their admiration for her and her beauty and, and the lovely events that she hosted. I even found in the archive 
a response from the secretary of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the former king of England and his American wife, um, where Molly Moon had invited them to be judges for one of her galas. And unfortunately, they couldn't because they were out of the country on royal business. But the sheer fact that she had access to the royals was just a testament to her reach. So once she started to involve these various people across the social spectrum, both in terms of New York City, but also the world. I mean, European aristocrats would attend her events. It meant that she was starting to get far more media coverage. And that gave her a lot of social power in in the larger movement for civil rights, um, but especially within the black community, where she was regularly named um, the social leader of the year by various black social and civic organizations. And she was also named to their best dress list alongside one of her very good friends, um, Jean, Jean Vanderbilt, who uh, she worked along with in the, their work for the National Urban League. Uh, tell me a bit more about her personality. She she seems stylish, right? Maybe that just comes from her part of her work, right? Too, you need to maintain an image, but uh, seems like a part of important to her as well. Most certainly, the thing that really impressed me was that initially when I encountered her, I'm I'm seeing her in the early 1960s. She's at the peak of her power and influence and fame. So she, the, the newspapers are describing her as this glamorous socialite. And while that was definitely true, once I started to spend time with her personal papers and her letters and correspondence with her closest friends and with her husband, I got to see that she was a thinker. She was a true intellectual and political strategist. She was someone who had earned a degree in pharmacy from Meharry Medical College, which was a, is a famed medical school for African Americans in Nashville, Tennessee. She had attended high school at Rust College, which was the same high school that Ida B. Wells had attended. So she was a woman who was definitely positioned uh, by her family to see education as a vital source for freedom and economic prosperity for African Americans. And then beyond that, she extended her training, taking graduate courses at Columbia's teacher co- Teachers College in education. She also took classes in, um, in public administration at the new school in New York City. So while she did not earn a graduate degree, she had taken graduate-level courses. And she melded these things with her own readings uh, by Karl Marx and other Pan-Africanist thinkers as well. So she was someone who was very well-versed in political thought of the day. And what I loved about her letters with her husband, Henry Moon, was that they, they often talked about the books that they were reading, and they were sending each other recommendations back and forth. I just read this. Or they would send each other newspaper clippings. They were avid readers of the newspaper. So this was definitely a part of her persona. And so it was important for me as a biographer to not just amplify the glamorous aspects of her, but to really think about how her political education and the evolution of her political thought really undergirded her vision as a major um, strategist for fundraising in the civil rights era. 
If you just joined us, we are talking with the historian Tanisha Ford. Uh, the new book is uh, a fascinating book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. We'll take a brief break and we'll be back with more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with historian Tanisha Ford. Uh, the new book is Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. That book is out and available now. You can find Tanisha Ford at TanishaCFord.com. <clears throat> and uh, Tanisha Ford is currently professor of history at Graduate Center at City University of New York. Um, and uh, we're recounting some of this history uh, an overlooked aspect of the civil rights era, the powerhouse fundraising efforts that supported the movement. And uh, Molly Moon was uh, definitely an uh, influential figure there. Um, so, Tanisha Ford, um, by the time you encounter Molly Moon in, these, in the archives, 1960s, uh, Molly Moon has lived several chapters of her life. I wonder if you'd take us back to the early years to tell us a little bit about early Molly Moon. Most certainly. Early Molly Moon, you know... Pieces of that early life are really obscured because a lot of African Americans, our papers were not collected to house and archive. So piecing together her early life took a lot of work, a lot of detailed work with census data and also other kinds of public records, as well as speaking with members of her family who knew bits and pieces of their, their grandparents and great-grandparents' history. So that was also very helpful. So Molly Moon was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1907. And she was born into a working-class family. Her family did not have a ton of money. But as I mentioned, they had a deep investment in education. And in fact, her, her, her mother, at least, I could find, had gone to school through middle school, which was a huge deal for African Americans in the South at the turn of the 20th century. And it looked like she was positioned to even go on to earn a high school uh, diploma, which again was a big deal for people who were just, you know, mere, a couple mere generations from enslavement. But she ends up getting married and she becomes pregnant with Molly. And once that happens, she and her husband, they're, they're, relationship experiences some difficulties, and so she leaves the South for Cleveland, Ohio, where her sister has relocated with her family. So Molly Moon spends, spends many of her formative years in Cleveland, Ohio. And it's interesting because although she didn't necessarily know her future husband, Henry Moon, at that time, he, too, was raised in Cleveland, as well as some of their other friends, including Langston Hughes, the, the poet, and Henry's first cousin, the, the writer Chester Heim. So there's this amazing community of black artists, intellectuals, and activists who are coming of age in Cleveland at the same time, even though many of them didn't know one another. So once Molly finished is middle school, she and her mom moved back to to Mississippi, and that's when Molly attends Russ College, and then she goes off to Meharry to earn her degree 
in pharmacy. At Meharry, she ends up dating one of her instructors in the pharmacy program, and they end up secretly getting married. Molly's only, you know, a teenager at this time, maybe 19, 20 years old, and then they move after she graduates. They make their marriage public, and they move to New Orleans, where they open up a a family-owned pharmacy. Now, this man is a member of the Creole elite in, in New Orleans, and so Molly is thrust into black high society in New Orleans. Uh, but she immediately becomes very disillusioned with this world that has these very strict ideas about feminine propriety and the role of women. And she has these big dreams of being um, a prominent figure, but also someone who's breaking down these kind of race and class barriers. And she just can't do it within the confines of that marriage. So she leaves that marriage, and as people will find when they read that book, I mean, the marriage burns down in the most publicly embarrassing ways. But she she licks her wounds, and she moves to New York City roughly around 1930, where she joins a community of Harlem Renaissance writers and thinkers, people like Dorothy West, Langston Hughes, as I mentioned before, Zora Neale Hurston, Louise Thompson Patterson. This is when she meets the man who will be become her third husband, Henry Moon. She meets him. Uh, uh, looks like you uh, cut out just there for briefly. Uh, just to oh, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. They form this delegation of folks uh, who will then go to Moscow to make a political propaganda film about the horrors of racial segregation and, and labor exploitation across the U.S. South. So they move to Moscow, Molly, Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, and a group of others. I think they, they total in, you know, around 22 people who go to Moscow to make this film. The film is never made, but Molly is deeply shaped by this experience in the USSR in the 1930s, where she and her peers are able to experience a kind of racial freedom away from Jim Crow segregation in the U.S. in ways that they had never before. So them, like Paul Robeson, who had traveled through the USSR in, in you know, the 1920s, they see the real power of democracy in the U.S. and that they could have a deep impact on, you know, how we rebuild democracy in the wake of the Great Depression. So Molly leaves Moscow and then she moves to Berlin before returning to New York City, where she launches her career as a social worker, thinking that this is the way that she can affect social change through her post as a social worker. So by the time we get to the early 1940s, when she begins her work with the National Urban League, she has lived abroad for over a year. She has studied in Berlin. She's fluent in German. She's a a deep thinker and reader. She's well-connected with the black artistic community and other members of the the white left in New York City. She has a very staunch politics that's deeply influenced by socialism and pan-Africanism. And she's well-positioned to make an impact in the civil rights movement. I want to have you expand a little bit about about that time in Moscow. This is interesting. You, you've recounted a story that uh, I forget who organized this. Um, they're going to, you know, you go to Moscow and make a film. Um, 
hard to get uh, a lot of people, right? This is USSR, a uh, little, little, some attraction, right? But some reticence as well. Um, how, how did this uh, experience affect uh, Molly? So from what I can tell, this is her first trip abroad. And it's a trip that is sponsored by the Communist Party USA. And Louise Thompson, who is one of the few people who's part of this cast of this film, which has the title Black and White, she's one of the few people that's actually affiliated with the Communist Party. And as you you express, uh, Tom, that this is really tricky business because at this point, you know, we're just, you know, not too far on the other side of of the Bolshevik Revolution. The USSR is a, a nascent nation state. They don't have recognition by, you know, the international uh, world powers that they, in many ways, want to be recognized so that they can trade with the U.S. and, and Western Europe, European countries as well. And so it's hard to get people who are established actors to go to the USSR to participate in this film. So Louise Thompson, after realizing that no one's really going to do this, who's an established actor because they don't want to be blackballed by Hollywood, she has to turn to her peer group. And again, these are mostly African Americans who are thinking, you know, we're young, we want to travel. At this time, it was really difficult for African Americans to get the proper visas to travel abroad. You needed a valid reason to travel, so this became their reason. So a lot of these people were affiliated with what we would call the New Negro Movement in the United States. So these were people who were trying to eradicate uh, primitivism in the world of the visual arts and 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 literature. These were folks who were imagining the the ways that African Americans uh, experienced and created modernity or notions of modernity. They were fighting to end racial segregation in the United States. And so they were already, many of them, politically and artistically mobilized, but not necessarily affiliated with the Communist Party, although at this time many African Americans were interested in thinking about socialism as an alternative to capitalism because they saw the ways in which African Americans' labor was being exploited in the United States and the ways that even the New Deal government's um, policies and initiatives weren't helping the most impoverished African-Americans. And at this time, majority of African-Americans were living in abject poverty in the United States. So there was a curiosity about the USSR, both in terms of the, you know, the artistic talent that was coming out of Moscow and other cities in the USSR at that time, the culinary arts, the architecture that was being um, rebuilt and reimagined um, at that time in the USSR. And so they go there, and for many of them, they see Moscow as the new Paris, if you will. What Paris had been in the 1920s, they were imagining Moscow to be in the 1930s. So Molly is deeply affected by this trip. And as I mentioned, just the freedom to walk the streets of Moscow and not have to worry about the the color line and the ways that they did in the United States, even in a city like New York, which was rather progressive, relatively speaking. So she took... In all the sights and sounds, even after the film busts up, she and Langston Hughes and Louise Thompson-Patterson, the the film's coordinator, they become guests of 
the the state and are able to tour through Uzbekistan and other parts of the USSR that are typically you know, off-limits to Western travelers. They got to explore those areas. And Langston Hughes writes extensively about these travels through Uzbekistan and other parts of the USSR um, in his memoir, I Wander As I Wander. So that was also a tremendous source for me. And even finding postcards in the archives that Molly has sent to friends about what it was like. I, I rode a camel for the first time. You know, <laughs> so you can just see her awe and wonder with the world and what it was like for her as a black girl who was born in the Jim Crow South. As many people, you know, have come to say, including Nina Simone, who writes about the horrors of Mississippi, that, you know, they thought that Mississippi was the most group gruesome place in terms of that southern regime. This is the state that Molly Moon is from. So for her to experience this kind of freedom in her early 20s, it made an indelible mark in her life. Uh, So she comes back. Uh, I suppose that this trip could have radicalized her politically, right? Could have could have turned to socialism, communism. Instead, it seems like her impulse was uh, turned to social work and uh, and, uh, you know, and turn her energies to that area? Well, you know, I do think that she was radicalized by her time abroad. I do think that once she came back by all accounts of things that I've read in her personal papers and even in stories that she's written uh, for the Crisis Magazine, the NAACP's major magazine at that time, she definitely espoused many communist and socialist beliefs. Again, like many African Americans of this time, because they were thinking about these alternatives to the capitalist system, for her this hit home because her stepfather worked in the mills of Gary, Indiana, and so she could see how uh, that they were performing this kind of backbreaking labor, but weren't being adequately compensated, didn't have insurance, couldn't get unemployment, and so forth. So she was radicalized in in many ways. Um, But, and it's also important to note, too, that for social workers at this time, social work was deemed progressive, if not radical work, especially working within black migrant communities in cities like New York. So a lot of black social workers of the day were also major political thinkers who were engaged in progressive and radical political thought. So Molly Moon, Lester Granger, and others were black radicals. I think you could definitely use that language to describe them. Her politics become more more centric, you know, so I would say more racial liberal in their in their outlook once she starts working with the National Urban League because again at that point now she's trying to raise monies from fiscal conservatives, religious conservatives, um, white liberals who don't espouse these more radical politics but who consider themselves progressive. So she's really engaging with people across that, you know, racial line, but also across these different political, across the political spectrum. So in that regard, some of her her own personal politics are are quite tempered, especially in their public-facing presentation. But also we have to remember, too, that there's this immense repression from the government against people who 
and even are believed to have ties with the Communist Party. And because Molly and Henry had taken that trip to the USSR, they were particularly targeted. And because both of them had worked for the government, either it, whether it be local government or, you know, the national government in, in Henry's case, because he had worked in the White House, um, they were under a certain kind of scrutiny. So many of the people within their social circle, they disavowed communism publicly and went on record. Henry, let me be clear, he never espoused communism. And once that trip in the USSR failed, he blamed Stalin um, and he wrote, spoke out very publicly against Stalin and against communism. Molly wasn't necessarily pro-Stalin, but she believed in, in, in the power of socialism. But even she starts to, you know, make those claims less publicly by the time we get to the late 1940s and early 50s. And, you know, the, we enter into this era that we, you know, of course, call the Cold War. Um, some of their friends, like Langston Hughes, burned or were, were believed to have burned their papers. Um, others, like Lauren Miller, who was a major figure in the NAACP's um, anti-discrimination cases, uh, who goes on to become a, a major judge in California and an instrumental attorney in terms of ending racial covenants in California housing law. He works very closely with um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He, too, has to publicly disavow communism because he had been a member of the Communist Party, and he was also on that trip to Russia in the early 1930s. Um, so there's a lot of repression there. So one of the things I tried to do was show the full range of black political thought at this time period and also Molly's personal ev political evolution. Um, uh, let's take a break, then I want to come back and ask you how she uh, got into that, that phase that you know that, that you encountered, right? Um, raising money, founding the guild, right? Raising money for the for the Urban League. Um, uh, so we'll we'll uh, take a break, come back, and uh, do that. We're talking with uh, Tanisha Ford. Her uh, book is uh, the latest book is Our Secret Society: Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. And we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with uh, historian Tanisha Ford, uh, and her uh, latest book is Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Fascinating book. It's out and available now. You can find, uh, by the way, Tanisha Ford at TanishaCFord.com. So, uh, Tanisha Ford, I want to read uh, just the opening quote from the book. You, you quote Molly Moon. Um, who said, at an early age, I became aware of my obligation to participate in organized efforts to level the onerous barriers which locked me and my people in a ghastly cultural, political, and economic ghetto. Neither I nor my family had sufficient income to make significant financial contributions to this cause. We did, however, have commitment, energy, and time to contribute. And so that, that gives you a sense of the person, um, that drive. Um, how, did, how did she... How did she get into this? Uh, at a certain point, I'm, I'm guessing she decided, well, I can, I can raise money for the cause. Yes, so she, and first of all, let me just say, I love that quote, which is why it shows that for the book, I found it in the, in the archive at Fisk University. Molly Moon, she's just such a fascinating figure. 
as I mentioned, she comes from a very working class family and she's found herself on this journey and odyssey, if you will, you know, around the world and, you know, meeting all kinds of amazing people, people we consider luminaries today. Um, but it really started because of the Harlem Community Arts Center, which was a center established by famed sculptor Augusta Savage and uh, was largely funded by the WPA. Um, it was one of their community art centers, part of their art center program. And Augusta Savage really launches it. And then Gwendolyn Bennett, another black woman arts educator, takes the helm. And this is a center that has support of various black artists of the day, including people um, like Romare Bearden, who's on the, the teaching faculty there, um, Aaron Douglas, another famed Harlem Renaissance paper, uh, painter, Selma Burke, Selma Day, Langston Hughes even drops in to teach some courses. And so you have a lot of black, you know, art, artistic luminaries who are really cutting their teeth and trying to break into the world of the fine arts in Jim Crow era America who see this, this center teaching the children of black migrants in Harlem as a major part of their institution building. So once they really struggle to raise money for this center, they bring in Molly Moon to help them raise funds. So Molly Moon, alongside Ramir Bearden's mother, Bessie Bearden, who's also an activist um, and civic leader, who I think is a blueprint for Molly Moon in many ways, um, is Londa Robeson, the wife of Paul Robeson, um, Alta Douglas, who's married to the painter Aaron Douglas. Like They form a committee of women who are in initially doing a lot of the fundraising work. And although they're not able to save the center, once the U.S. enters into World War II, they lose the government funding and the, the center has to shutter its doors. But it's that, it's the success that Molly Moon has had uh, with her fundraising that allows her to be seen as someone who could do this work for the National Urban League. And Lester Granger, who becomes the head of the National Urban League, of course, had been on the advisory board of the center, so he taps his friend and fellow social worker to launch the National Urban League Guild. Now, given that quote that Molly Moon offered, Offers about the fact that she and her family did not come from money, but they knew she knew that they had time and energy to give to the movement. If you keep that in mind and think about the fact that you have this woman from very humble origins who's now thrust into the spotlight of the National Urban League, who has ties to the Javitses, the Rockefellers, uh, the Vanderbilts, the Fieldses, like all of these extremely moneyed Upper East Side New York City families, generational wealth. I mean, just think about what that would have been like for a black woman like Molly Moon. She has the charisma. She has the charm. She's able to speak to all different types of people um, to make them feel seen, heard, and understood. But I also appreciated her personal strength. She was uncompromising in terms of who she was. Um, and so she was a very effective fundraiser. She could go into the home of the Javitses and, and you know, really entice them to not only give money, but to lend their name to the movement. So a lot of these families became supporters and sponsors of her various 
galas for the National Urban League. She works so closely with Winthrop Rockefeller that people start to, you know, plant rumors in the press that she and Winthrop Rockefeller are having an affair, despite the fact that they're both married. And this was a particularly tawdry rumor because, of course, interracial relationships at this time were still outlawed in most cities and most states in the country. So it was, you know, this these stories about the beguiling Molly Moon and the playboy, you know, maverick son of John D. Rockefeller Jr., um, that really added a certain kind of spice to these stories about the fundraising. So I wanted to chronicle all of that and to imagine what it would be like for, you know, an African-American woman like Molly Moon to endure so much. And I think that the reason why she did it was in part because, let's just be clear, she did have a penchant for the glamour of it all and the celebrity of it all, but she also had a deep commitment to racial justice. There were some criticisms, of course. Um, uh, One was maybe we shouldn't be raising money from white liberals. Um, I I guess the concern is... um, and we become dependent on that, and that maybe those whites decide that this isn't where they want to send their money anymore. Exactly. I mean, that was a huge part of this. So one of the things I do in the book is tell this story about American philanthropy and the history of American philanthropy and African-Americans take on this, because, you know, oftentimes we hear these stories in the press, even today, about people like Mackenzie Scott or the Walton family um, uh, or other families giving money to black organizations, to HBCUs. In fact, Feldman College was just given $100 million So there's a way that we have these white faces and names to philanthropy and their generosity to black organizations, but there's a flip side to that coin, and that is that many African Americans felt then and now that if we take this money, we will become beholden to these white benefactors, and we will be, our movements will be shaped by this white hand of philanthropy, and that it would steer the movement away from the more grassroots, radical change that we really want to see. And one of the most outspoken voices in this debate was Malcolm X, who was very critical of the leaders of the so-called Big Six Civil Rights Organizations, which included the NAACP and the Urban League, but also Martin Luther King Jr.'s SCLC. Um, and SNCC and CORE, he was critical of the ways that they rallied to take money from these major philanthropic foundations. As a historian, I'm trying to hold both of these perspectives in tension to, to see that African-American civil rights leaders are forced to try to make the, what they see as the best choice possible out of a set of less than ideal circumstances because of the history of Jim Crow segregation in this country and because of the the labor exploitation of, of the descendants of um, the enslaved Africans in this country, it means that, you know, the system of capitalism would never was never designed to work for African-Americans. And thus, the system of, you know, big picture philanthropic foundation philanthropy um, was never meant to really benefit African-American communities either. So, but what are we going to do? This is the system that we're currently living under. So how can we create reforms within that system? And then there were other people who thought, well, the solution is to just dismantle the system altogether and create something that's more just. 
So, but what do you do until that happens, right? You're working within this system. And so Molly Moon found herself working within this system, even though she too was very critical of how it operated. Um, so that's something that we see play out today. And as I was writing the book, you know, on the watching what was unfolding after the murder of George Floyd and, you know, philanthropic foundations and corporations making pledges to Black Lives Matter and other organizations, I saw a similar dynamic that played out in the 1960s as the civil rights movement really revved up into the movement we think of today with the sit-ins and large-scale marches led by people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Uh, yeah, it does resonate today, doesn't it? Uh, another it criticism does. that you recount in the book is uh, there came a new generation, younger generation of black journalists who are skeptical of this, right, uh, saying our, our people are still living in abject poverty. Why are we having fancy balls? Exactly. Lillian Scott, I just, I loved finding her column. She took this, what used to be like a celebrity dish column and used it to um, really be critical of the celebrity civil rights circuit or what she saw as emerging as this, this realm of people who were becoming famous for being civil rights activists. She was really critical of this. And uh, even other people um, within CORE, for example, and SNCC, younger activists like Stokely Carmichael and others were critical of these galas because, you know, it, it may, you might raise a half a million dollars, but it took you a quarter of a million dollars, you know, in expenses just to host the thing. So who is it really benefiting? Um, so they were more partial to comedy show fundraisers or um, concert, benefit concerts where singers um, like Joan Baez and Harry Belafonte, Nina Simone, you know, a whole plethora of jazz singers, comedians like Dick Gregory, they would waive their appearance fees in order to uh, keep the overhead of these fundraisers down. And they felt like these were more democratic events that would invite people from across the class spectrum to participate and they wouldn't have to pay this big dollar ticket for a gala. So, and the mainstream media exploited the, this growing tension in the movement, saying that we were living, experiencing a whole, a full-on racial revolt, where you know Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, and others were um, at. at in a war, if you will, against Martin Luther King, Whitney Young, Roy Wilkins, and other old guard civil rights leaders, as they described them. So the media really milks this thing. And it's in this moment that Molly Moon is both pushed to the side within the Urban League, as Whitney Young now takes the helm and becomes the big figure leader. She's pushed to the side in that way, but she also becomes a major target because of the fact that she's the one who has hosted these galas and is seen as the face who's always photographed in the media with these wealthy white liberals. So in many ways, she becomes the face of you know, philanthropic foundation at a moment when young African-Americans are now highly critical of that approach to civil rights fundraising. We just have a minute or two left. Uh, I want to end with this. Uh, what lessons do you take from Molly Moon's life? 
One thing I love about Molly Moon was that she really is a model for uh, what grassroots organizing can look like. Um, we are living through a time where the movement still rages on. We're still fighting for the kind of social change that Molly and her peers um, were fighting for in the 1950s and 60s. And so I think that this book offers a lesson for where we've been, but what's also possible for the kind of democratic uh, present and future that we want to live in. For me also as a black woman, I see it as a joy project too. I didn't want to just rehash the story of African-American history that's all about, um, you know, tragedy and, you know, those sorts of things, but to, to show that despite all of the things that we've endured in this country, we've been able to create our own joy practices, we've done our own institution building, and and that for me was a really redemptive part of of this story, which in many ways has a lot of, you know, horrific elements, but there's a beauty to it, too, and I think that Molly Moon was very good at holding both of those things, you know, fighting for freedom, but also reveling in joy and love and, and the pleasures of life. We've been talking with Tanisha Ford, a writer, researcher, cultural critic, working at the intersection of politics and culture. She's a professor of history at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, where she teaches courses on African-American and African uh, diaspora history, biography and memoir, and geopolitics of fashion. And her latest book is a fascinating book called Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Between, Behind the Civil Rights Movement. That's out and available now. You can find Tanisha Ford at TanishaCFord.com. Tanisha Ford, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, Access Utah. Appreciate it.